of the Digiday podcast. My name is Tim Peterson. I am senior media editor at Digiday. And I'm Kaylee Barber, media editor at Digiday. All right, Kaylee, you had the interview this week. You spoke with Pam Drucker-Mann, who is the global chief revenue officer of Condé Nast. Um, so I feel like anyone who's chief revenue officer of a major publisher like Condé Nast has probably had a pretty busy 2021 coming off of mm-hmm. 2020. What did Pam say about like how 2021 was and wasn't different than 2020? Yeah, that was one of the first questions I asked her um, because it feels like in a lot of the coverage that we've done, there's been a lot of indication that 2021 was like a year of innovation, experimentation, um, getting experimental with revenue streams. And Pam kind of agreed to that in in that, especially when it comes to the consumer business that they're running. They've been trying to meet their um, consumers in different locations on different platforms and really focus on growing things like e-commerce and even ticket revenue um, now that events have come back to a degree. Um, In 2020, she mentioned that, you know, it like any other kind of media company, like advertisers were pulling back and they saw like a steep drop off in revenue for several months. Um, So 2020 ended, I don't think as drastically as a lot of publishers were expecting it to, but it did have an impact and it was a lot of survival mode. Um, So we talked about how a lot of these businesses from, you know, 2019 were coming back into the fold But then we also talked about some of the newer businesses that were being created in the same vein and how that ultimately led to an increase in revenue, um, which Pam says was the best year. 2021 was the best year in the past 10 years for the company. In terms of revenue. Yeah, in terms of revenue. And she does get into some of the um, percentage growth numbers, which I don't remember off the top of my head. So listen for them. But uh, yeah, she did say it was the best year in the past decade in terms of revenue for the company. Got it. Although I guess now that I think of it, it kind of makes sense because the past decade, it's not like the print side of the company would have been um, going bananas, I wouldn't think. But still, it's something to be said for that. Yeah, compared to like legacy magazine publishers of old, it's not at that same level. But I, I imagine, I'm not seeing their books, but I imagine it's not, you know, back when they were Devil Wears Prada <laughs> selling you know, or sending cars to pick up editors, you know, at the at the building. Um, but anyway, she did get into a lot of the innovation and experimentation that she's excited for in the coming year as well. Got yeah. What's she expecting for 2022? Yeah. So she mentioned a few of the areas that she wasn't fully ready to delve into in too much detail because, again, these are upcoming initiatives. But things like live shopping, which is an extension of their e-commerce strategy. Um, she talked about potential blockchain and NFT experimentation, um, especially because how the NFT space is very focused on collectors and, you know, luxury and, um, you know, sports and things like that. But there's a lot of room for, you know, legacy brands to get involved there as well. And she talked about seeing the potential there. Um, And then also just, I guess, getting deeper into like events coming back and um, new digital products that they could sell um, to advertisers that are tied to storytelling and tied to the brands. Um, So those are some of the things that she talked about um, being most excited about. And 
I don't know, I'm most excited about seeing some of that blockchain innovation that she mentioned. God, it sounds like a very full interview we have coming up. So yeah. let you take it away. Thanks, Kelly. Thanks, Tim. Pam, thanks so much for joining us on the Digiday podcast. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So we're recording this episode at the end of the year, and I figured it would be a great kind of theme of this episode to talk about the differences between the 2020 year and the 2021 year um, and how it feels running a business through pandemic year two. Um, So we're at a point where I feel like 2021 has been extremely good for innovation, getting our feedback under us, finding new ways of doing business online versus in person. And to that end, I feel like there's been a lot of changes that have been able to happen, um, especially for like legacy media companies. Um, So I wanted to, I guess, kick it off by asking, how did 2021 feel compared to 2020, Um, especially towards the end of the year? Do you feel like it was a successful year for business this year? Did it feel different from, I guess, pandemic year one? Um, It was, it's like night and day. I was actually just having this conversation with some colleagues this morning. Um, Yesterday was our first like official day back to work. Um, and I mean, I've been coming in all summer, but our, our team is here. And so you could just feel like the energy, uh, you know, in world trade and, you know, all the hallway conversation and, you know, just a very big difference in where we were, you know, last year, um, where we were running businesses from our homes legitimately. Some of us have kids that were homeschooled at that time. And so honestly, last year was, you know, literally different. Um, it was physically different. And financially, you know, it, it could not be more different. Um, last year, we were experiencing, you know, just endless declines from an advertising perspective. You know, as you know, we went into lockdown, and you know, marketers were shifting and holding and pausing and moving, and there was just so much volatility and uncertainty. And this year is the exact opposite, in which advertisers are shifting and moving, um, but it's all about growth. Um, and so, you know, where there was all this unexpected decline in our revenue last year, there's been, uh, there was a lot of unexpected, you know, growth also. And so this year has been an unbelievably successful year for us and our business. Um, you know, starting with our consumer growth, our audience growth was tremendous. That obviously started last year. That was a silver lining in 2020 actually was consumers spent a lot more time, uh, you know, watching and entertaining themselves at home. And we definitely reap the benefits of that. And it's continued this year as our audiences have continued to climb. I think we're up 40% in audience growth since 2019 alone. And then from a revenue perspective on the commercial side, it's just been tremendous. I mean, we're having the best year we've had in 10 years. Um, Wow. And it's been just an unbelievable, just an unbelievable year. Yeah. Got it. So lots to unpack there. I definitely want to talk about the revenue growth. Um, But you mentioned that this is the first, like, I guess, official day back, or yesterday was the first official day back in the office um, for your team. And I would love to kind of talk about the return to office. So what, I guess, what helped you choose this week as the week to come back um, in full force? And um, is it like the international return or is this, you know, the New York office has fully reopened? Yeah, great question. So first of all, I should say this is the, when I said that, this is the U.S. office that officially reopened. Globally, uh, many of our markets opened up, um, you know, months ago. So it's just, it's it's very different in, you know, depending on what country we're in. 
Um, but our, our headquarters is in New York and, you know, this was kind of like a big deal, um, you know, that we came back. And so, um, I'm, and I'm also appreciative that you called it return to office, not return to work because everyone's been working probably 10 times as hard, um, since they left in March of 2020. It's really been just a, a, you know, I think a psychological moment and shift in thinking around, wow, has this really happened? Like, you know, we've lost when's the last time we were here all together? It's like almost two years now. Um, and just like the recognition of that. And, you know, we've learned a lot through this, this, this time, um, you know, obviously technology has really changed the way that we communicate. You know, we've gotten a lot faster in so many ways. Um, we've become really efficient in many, many ways. And I think in some ways our team is like afraid of losing that level of efficiency and ability just to get a lot done in a short period of time. And so my advice to our team has been, listen, don't try to recreate at work, what you've been doing at home, and don't try to recreate at home what you've been doing at work. Um, and uh, you know, my best analogy for that is, you know, don't try to host drinks over Zoom. I think we've all realized that's a horrible experience, uh, and I hope to never do that again. Um, that's really a good thing to do in person, <laughs> versus you know what we do uh, in in person, and and really that level of engagement and creative energy that comes from working with a team of people. You know, hallway conversation. You know. Sometimes unstructured meetings is actually where you get the best ideas um, versus like I think what we've all kind of gained in terms of this this world at home, this hybrid uh, opportunity in which you could knock out 12 one-on-one -on -one meetings with anyone in the world um, in one day, right? And so I think that there's a benefit to both. Um, and I'll just end by saying, you know, my advice to my team has also been be where you need to be to be the most effective at your job. And I think, you know, there's different examples and different um, reasons to uh, you know, know that in this moment in time, you know, it's best to to have a one on one in person uh, versus you know spending uh, time on your computer. Yeah, and so I guess I'm curious too because um, I believe Conde has kept its offices um, the in in the Freedom Tower throughout the pandemic. Have there been maybe not unexpected, but like new costs coming back into the mix with the return to office? Like now, maybe you have to stock the kitchens again, or you have to um, start paying for people to do business meetings um, outside of the uh, maybe city or, or things like that. Like, have there been costs that you needed to add back into the budget? And can you talk a little bit about um, what some of those like things might be if you've had to deal with those again? Yeah, I mean, there's huge costs being added back for M and M's, um, and uh, we, we eat a lot of M and M's here. So there's just <laughs> lots of dollars flowing back into our PNL to support uh, the sugar high that our team um, needs at any given moment. But yeah, I mean, listen, there's intuitive cost, obviously, that's that happens when you know our teams start seeing clients and getting back on planes and you know um, hosting you know breakfast, lunches, and dinners. And I think there's you know. With that, yes, I'm sure we're going to use more electricity and, and things like that. But um, really, I would just say the answer is like intuitive. Um, I think that there's some changes in the way that we, you know, think about cost. You know, I think we were living at a time before the pandemic that was felt very much like excess. And, um, you know, I don't think people were considering do I need this or do I not? It was just kind of always how things were. And so I think we've we've learned to like just move a lot faster, uh, move with less. And when I say that, I mean, you know, really thinking about 
Um, what do I need to do to get this done? And um, I think we just become more resourceful. And I think with that comes intuitive savings and just a better way of doing business. And so I think the the idea of being able to work smarter, not harder, knowing that you have production teams on the ground and like, you know, many different locations, does that mean you should be flying a new team over there if you've already got a team, you know, that's present? Um, so I think it's really given us a gift, to be honest, just, you know, more thoughtful approaches around how we think about spending. And then, listen, we're having an amazing year. Our CEO, you know, gave our team the gift of free lunch. And so, you know, we're spending money on our employees in ways that feel right in this moment in time. And we've also found ways to continue to conserve. Yeah, let's talk about the great year that you're having. Um, You mentioned it's the best one in 10 years. Um, What do you think was the biggest contributor to, to that rapid growth? Is it like the advertisers coming back in full force and being willing to work with you in new and unique ways? Or, you know, is it, I guess, like a a new, I don't know, focus in terms of like consumer revenue? I guess what were some of the highlights from the year in terms of revenue? I mean, I think for us, the best thing that happened in 2020 was our undeniable focus on our consumer, right? Because it really wasn't the year of the advertiser. And it was it was really about, and I, and I would say even to take a step back, you know, our, our CEO, I keep almost calling him our new CEO because again, we've lost time. And this, this April will be Roger Lynch's third year. Um, but pre-pandemic, he had been here a little over a year. And, um, you know, he came over to really emphasize and focus our strategy um, on building a relationship with our consumer and building a deeper relationship with our consumer, I should say, and expanding that relationship with with our consumer, um, both for commercial and and obviously con- for direct to consumer revenue purposes. And I would say that focus around um, audience development and audience growth and 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 really like building that relationship out has served us well. Um, and so we've had kind of unprecedented growth across the board. So again, you've got audience scale, right? So our audience is up 40%. You've got an e-commerce business, which is something that we didn't have, like a lot of others did, didn't have a couple of years ago. Um, Just really flying. I think we're up 46% in e-commerce revenues. Um, And we have a lot of permission to be successful in that space, right? Our our whole DNA is to, to create wantedness and demand. That's what our brands do. Brands like Vogue's, you know, actually create desire, Every day in the content it creates, and so you know, connecting commerce to our content felt very intuitive and right. Um, and we've experienced a lot of success there. We've continued to have a really successful, um, what I would call, uh, digital subscription strategy. So just consumers continuing to raise their hands to you know pay for quality journalism, um, which I think is good for all of us. And um, you know, other ways we, we launched an Allure store, our first kind of like stand up store in New York City. Um, you know, our licensing partnerships have just gotten stronger. So I'd say all the way around, our relationship with our consumer just grew and got deeper. And because of that, I think it really built a stronger relationship with our advertiser. And I think um, our commercial business in particular is um, really, really flying right now. And um, there's a couple of reasons why. So, you know, if we're truly meeting the consumer where they are, it allows us to provide our advertisers with a lot more range, um, because that's their goal too, right? They want to, they need to acquire customers, um, and they need to do it in brand safe environments. They also need access to first party data, um, which they 
currently are not able to find in the same ways they could before because of the privacy shifts. Um, but more so, I think our intellectual property and our brands are now creating content for over 80 platforms. Um, and that that relationship we've developed with consumers has you know, really helped us create stronger, um, more innovative, more agile, thoughtful partnerships for our marketers. And so, um, and look, I mean, you know, for us, that was, that's really been the step change, right? In that, um, you know, we're, I think our average monthly uniques right now is 350 million per month. Um, and as I already mentioned, we're one of Instagram's biggest content publisher. We have a huge TikTok launch this year. And so we're just moving fast and we're bringing our ad partners along with us. So it's been a, it's been a tremendous year for all of those reasons. I got to ask about the revenue like numbers. Um, you mentioned commerce is up, I think, 46 percent uh, year over year. What about ad revenue or overall revenue? Um, what can you share with us from that end? <laughs> um, we're having a great year. So I think our total global commercial revenue right now is up 20 percent, which is exceeding industry benchmarks right now quite a bit. Um and, uh, you know, if you were to, that includes print, by the way. So if you were to exclude print from that story, like our digital revenues are up almost 40% this year. So it's, it's a big, and by the way, like, you know, um, what I'm really proud of is that's not just a, you know, post COVID bump. Um, we've been experiencing that, that type of revenue growth in digital for the last four years. Um, it's just that our, you know, print revenues don't, don't represent um, the majority of our composite anymore. And so as we continue to accelerate our digital revenues, it's allowing us to have an overall kind of like amazing performance year. Um, and it's just the mix of our business has changed, right? Like our, we have a huge, you know, in the US, pretty substantial digital video business, um, which represents a huge part of our digital growth. We're seeing a massive you know, I got to be honest, this is not something I expected. We're seeing a lot of growth in, in web um, on our, both our owned and operated and how we think about um, how we monetize social. Um, you know, our marketers are buying us in a lot of new ways. Again, the way that we monetize our audiences direct through our first party data capabilities. I do think there's something to be said for, and we were just at the beginning, to be honest with you, um, this shift away from audience targeting to contextual targeting and it'll be interesting to see how other publishers do in this moment in time. Maybe you can give me uh, maybe you can give me some answers on that. But we're seeing a lot of. I I'll be honest with you. I was just having a conversation with another client. I haven't seen this kind of inbound ever in terms of just the amount of RFPs that are coming in right now. And so we're starting to wonder: is is some of this coming from these shifts in privacy and you know marketers needing to find new ways to find their customer, which is obviously going to yeah. continue to be important to them. Yeah, no, I, I did want to talk about kind of the third-party cookie going away, um, refocus on first-party data, and, and I guess, to your point, contextual um, data as well. Uh, because obviously this year, Google announced it was delaying the third-party cookies um, going away on their platform. So it's definitely given more time um, for publishers, marketers, advertisers, et cetera, to brace for that change. I guess, have you been using that delay to your advantage when it comes to figuring out what your strategy will look like? Or do you feel like your um, first party data and contextual data strategy has already been kind of performing where you need it to be? And, and you're feeling comfortable with that? Like, yeah, have you I think we're feeling good about it. I mean, I think I think that the I think right now, the other kind of broader moment that's happening is like, 
it's a creator's economy, right? I mean, the if you think about the pendulum in terms of just how marketers are prioritizing their dollars, you know, this was already starting to happen before the privacy shift started last spring. Um, you know, really looking at the full funnel, I think marketers were starting to see some of the, you know, the car was running out of gas a bit in terms of return on investment, starting to refocus some dollars on building their brands. Um, also just recognizing that the funnel is kind of collapsed, right, with technology. Like the decision journey isn't that that much of a journey anymore. Um, you know, creating wants and desire and conversion can all can happen in like three seconds. And I think because of that, marketers have been more focused on how do we get more gas in the tank? You know, how do we get closer to content? And, you know, everyone wants to be a content creator. And there's a variety of reasons why content is driving commerce, content is driving stickiness and engagement. It's, it, you know, it's kind of fueling the whole thing. Um, and so for us as a content company, we're well positioned, I guess, but I would say we were already kind of well positioned um, to be that solution to our marketing partners. Because like, you know, we've, the, our entire focus is about building that relationship directly to our consumer. And our tools, like very specifically, I think, because we're building an e-commerce relationship and we're building, you know, a stickier relationship around, um, you know, how we monetize our quality content directly to our consumer. So those are tools we're refining on behalf of ourselves. And so now we're just allowed, now we're just, you know, in a position to lend some of those tools back to our clients. Um, and so in partnership with SEO and these signals that we get from our environment, you know, we're able to provide a cookie-less, um, frictionless, easy to use and easy to prove um, product back to our clients. And so, you know, I call it, to me, it's like, you know, our whole strategy is IP and 1P. You know, we make content, we have consumers that want that content, and, you know, that relationship is something that we can now directly monetize back to our clients. I feel like when I'm talking to other publishers, a lot of what I hear is brands want to be content creators, but they don't want to create a newsroom. So they're leaning on publishing partners to do that for them. And so to that end, I'm curious, like, have the types of partnerships you've been doing this year, maybe specifically, um, have they been definitely more so focused in that, like, maybe branded content realm or in, you know, your video, your digital video and being like attached to programming? Um, has it felt more like the you're creating content for them more regularly or are you still getting interest for the, you know, display ads and programmatic? Um, like, does it feel like there's been a shift at all in the types of like campaigns I, you're doing? I hear what you're saying. I mean, I think that, listen, two things. I think one we have a lot of range now. We have scale, right? So the truth is, is that from a distribution perspective, it's just easier for advertisers to run their own assets across, you know, our owned and operated across our partnership sites, right? Um, and so, the, you know, if you think about like the way we've really, I would just say, refined our relationship with our advertising partners is to really think about Connie Nass as more of like the Connie Nass platform, and how you buy into the Conanas platform. So if you take Vogue as an example, and you think about Vogue at the, the center of the wheel, you know everything that we do is really a spoke off of that wheel. So obviously the magazine is a spoke. You know what we mean in digital video, whether that's on YouTube or owned and operated, is a spoke. How we think about how we optimize for um, in social is a spoke. You know we just launched 
We had a huge, one of the other kind of, I would say, reasons for our success this year is we've just gotten a lot more innovative around our content and these cultural moments that we own. And we had a huge kind of like first ever Met Gala live stream moment that we owned exclusively. And we were able to share the Met Gala through the Vogue brand lens um, directly with our clients. And so like innovation and content scale of distribution allows just advertisers an opportunity to be in a brand safe environment. Um, environment matters to reach their core customers still through audience and contextual targeting, which is important to them because they still need to like find the right customer at the right time with the right message. And then I would say, yeah, I mean, we're a creative company. We probably, you know, are, you know, we're pretty competitive when it comes to how we help our advertisers tell their own stories in addition to how we tell ours. Um, but just, I would just say more innovation in, in how we think about intentional viewing and integration in branded storytelling, um, you know, how we think about, you know, I would say we've just got our first party data capabilities are just much better than they've ever been. Um, we've, you know, we've innovated around live shopping. And so I think if you take the, a moment like the Met Gala, which is like, you know, our, I think we had 16.5 million live stream views that were global views um, that came just to watch our live stream. It beat the ABC's red carpet Oscars moment. I mean, that's telling you that like, this is a big step change. You have something that big with that much scale. And then you have all these other like innovative content moments that we can bring to clients that only we have. And people always say to me like, why are you guys doing so well? Like, you know, what do you have that, that your competitors don't have? I'm like, well, Vogue and GQ and Vanity Fair and Architectural Digest. I mean, that's the truth, right? That that's actually what we have that no one else has. And so it's it's that, but now this kind of acceleration of audience and engagement that I think has made us more valuable to the marketer. And so I think all of that combined is lends itself to a pretty successful 2021. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor, and we'll be right back. Obviously, the return of the Met Gala came back this year, different than normal timing in a year, but I think a good time for pandemic and vaccine distribution. Um, but how has the return of events, I guess, impacted your annual revenue? Did you get to do more events in like live than in 2020? Or was that kind of the, just the kind of kickoff of that business? Well, if 2020 was zero, anything was going to be better than that, right? So um, yes, we definitely had more events. We had a New Yorker festival. We had a Met Gala. We had, um, you know, we've had other partner events that we've held. We had a Pitchfork Festival that was our most successful on record. I mean, I will say what's interesting is, and it was, it's been a pleasant surprise. I don't think we anyone knew what, you know, if people were going to, kids were going back to school this year, let alone if we were going to have like a Pitchfork Festival. So it's kind of been this like, I don't know, this like slow unfolding of like pent up consumer interest around events. I think there was like a, a lot of, you know, if you would have asked me this question in, de in December of last year or January of last year, I'd have been like, yeah, no one's going to events. But as the year kind of unfolded, um, obviously there was that kind of like vaccine moment with the first time. It was like, oh, everyone get out. It's going to be amazing. And then of course, when there was breakthrough cases, people were like, oh my God, people are going to go back into their houses. And I think there was a lot of fear around what was going to happen. But I think we, I think we handled it in the right way. We just took each market, each event case by case and just um, made decisions in the, in the, you know, obviously with a, with a timeline that made sense, but 
as to whether or not we thought our consumers wanted to have this experience. And I thought our Pitchfork Festival was a great example of that. Um, obviously, it was an outdoor festival, so it made it easier to kind of like move forward with it. But still, nonetheless, like there was a moment where we were like, will this happen? Um, but we've seen more and more of these events. Obviously, technology and the vaccine has enabled us to connect with our consumers in these high-touch environments. But I'll be honest, like it is so interesting to see how much consumers want to come to these events. Um, and I do think part of it is just doing nothing for so long that it's just like travel, like everyone's just kind of ready to like get out there and live and experience. And people have, you know, they've compared it to the roaring twenties and we're seeing it and we're feeling it. And we actually feel like a sense of urgency to move faster in that way. And just to make sure that we continue to create a safe environment, um, for our consumers. And so we're, we're revving up for, a you know, our, the, the Met coming back first Monday in May, we're revving up for, you know, the Vanity Fair Oscar party that will be um, end of March. Um, you know, we're all starting to talk about CES, like who's going, like, are we going, you know? So it's starting to feel a little bit more normal, but I think we're asking smarter questions now, which is like, do we need to be there? Do we want to be there? And if we're going to be there, what are we going to do that's different? Right. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess kind of going back to that, like return to office, like what's necessary to do business? Like what can we change? And yeah, um, I think also, and and maybe this is just like a, a personal feeling, but like I've been excited about going back to events, especially when they're based in areas where you can require vaccination card records. And like in New York, like it feels a lot safer going to um, an indoor event or like a festival, for instance, when you can guarantee that, the likelihood of getting COVID is extremely low. Um, so kind of going off of that, sticking with events for a second, have you have you needed to like, does it almost feel like you have to manage sponsorship expectations again with the return of events? Because to a degree, it's still touch and go. You still have to decide whether or not you're going to be there at the end of the day. Like, is it worth going to CES? Is it worth doing something virtually? Like have advertisers seemed flexible when it comes to some of those more experiential um, moments. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, look, we, our pivot in 2020 was like all these virtual events and hybrid events. And I think we learned just like, you know, the example I gave about never having a drink again over Zoom, you know, there are certain events that really just are going to mean more in person forever. Um, but there was other examples. I think we had a, we had a really successful New Yorker festival that was 100% virtual last year. And I think, you know, there's there's a moment in time for in-person, there's a moment in time for virtual. And I think even in a world where we can all be outside all day long and like lick the sidewalk, like there's still like a, re there's still merit to some of these like virtual experiences and events, you know, just because of time and people want to learn and, you know, people take master classes and get degrees now online. And that was happening before the pandemic, right? So I think events, you know, one, the question we ask ourselves first, and again, this is the most important thing, is less about like, what do marketers want? It's like, what does the consumer want? Like, who's the audience? Who's going to be there? What's our role? You know, and what do, are we, you know, are we going to be able to really like grow our fan base through this experience? If you look at Pitchfork Festival, it's like, this is a big part of the DNA of the brand, like discovering new artists, being in a place where you can hear them live. Um, I don't think anyone is going to argue whether, you know, a live performance is better than a virtual performance in music. And so, yeah, there was a reason to be there. The second question was like, you know, traditionally that event has been Chicago. And like when we were making that decision about whether to host that festival in Chicago, numbers were super low and we were having that dialogue about that. It was like, great, the numbers are low. It's going to be outside, means something to the brand. 
we were testing whether or not consumers were going to buy tickets early. And it was like, I mean, it was just every test we did, it was like telling us it was going to sell out. And it did. I mean, we never sold more tickets ever to, in the history of all Pitchfork festivals to, than to this Pitchfork festival. And so all of those things, if you kind of rinse and repeat, I think there's a way that we need to be approaching events moving forward. Who's the audience? Are they going to be there? Is this a market that makes sense? Is it safe? Um, can we provide an experience that that is going to be right for the consumer? And then with those answers, with with those boxes checked as a yes, then it's much easier to go back to the marketer and say, look, here's what we're doing. We really believe in being there. And I think our our strategy, what I like about our strategy moving forward is like, we're not really building experiences for advertisers. The reality is if consumers are going to show up, it's going to be great for advertisers anyway. That's why they want to be there. Um, and so once we've answered those questions, then it's very easy to go to a marketer. And I think, look, one thing that I love about kind of what we've been through together is I don't have to explain to a marketer like, hey, you know, this might pivot given some major lockdown. I think intuitively everyone gets it and you know, we don't have to like build that into contracts. I think it's really about approaching each event as they come in a very thoughtful way. That all being said, I think we need to start planning out further now. And I think we can a little bit with some of these caveats. We've learned a lot more. We have more foresight into vaccine technology. We understand other measures that we can take in terms of providing a, a, a you know a safe environment to a certain extent. And we just have to be really smart and thoughtful about it. But events is actually a really big part of our go-forward strategy. And we really believe in in-person events and experiences. It's going to be uh, – we really believe in um, what it does for the relationship we have with – that consumers have with our brands. And you can expect to see a lot more of that from us. So events is a big focus for 2022. Um, obviously – 2021 has been a positive revenue year for you guys. Um, where are some other areas of investment for the coming year? Do you feel like it could be an experimental year for you guys, like try out new areas of revenue? Um, All of it. So, yeah. What What are you thinking? Well, I mean, for us, it's really about just, you know, we, we, we are a creative company and we want to be the best creative company in the world. And so, um, you know, we just want to move a lot faster in terms of how we think about content innovation. So whether that's like metaverse, gaming, um, how we think about live stream formats, um, you know, what we want to do around live shopping, like just test the hell out of all this stuff with our consumers and just, you know, build more innovation, dimensionalizing our brands in new places. We are, speaking of new places, meeting the consumer where they are, we're officially launching on TikTok next year with Vogue and GQ, which is going to be a big moment for us. Um, and we launch around Fashion Week, which is obviously a place where, you know, Vogue uh, and GQ obviously have a lot of permission to be. Um, but, you know, for us, it's about taking like franchises and formats, for example, like with Vogue, Beauty Secrets, which has been a really successful um, franchise um, across our owned and operated on YouTube. And, and then taking that format to a new platform like TikTok and seeing how we could optimize it differently. And so... I would say you're going to see a lot more innovation. Um, you know, we launched some of these innovative strategies at our new, on the new front stage last year that played out like Met Gala Live. We have the red carpet Vanity Fair live stream coming up for the very first time um, this March. And so one of the things that we've done to really accelerate this is we've developed um, a tool that's actually been great for our marketers under NDA called our cultural calendar, where... Um, for you know, all of 2022, we have our most innovative uh, brand IP 
um, that allows our advertisers to take a look and say, okay, how do I have a more always-on media partnership with Condé Nast and Condé Nast brands? How can we think more strategically about our launches and how they line up with these bigger cultural moments? Everyone wants to be in and around big cultural moments, but it's hard to do when you don't know they're coming. Um, some of them are obvious, but others are not, right? So that's a tool that's going to help, I think, our clients get in and around, as I said earlier, our IP. And then we're going to be really innovative about our 1P2, just like how are we, you know, what are new ways that we're going to build out um, the relationship we have with our audiences? Um, how can we think differently about um, just some of the learnings that we're seeing in e-commerce? How do we apply that? You know, e-commerce is it's not going away. It's not just like a pandemic-like trend. It is... It's it's, I think it's a it's a new way form, forward in how consumers are going to transact. But you know, we also have to be thoughtful about the fact that um, you can't put e-commerce on the inside of every ad. It's going to start to feel like spam, right? It's kind of like remember when Evite launched and everyone was like getting an Evite, and you're like, I don't, I don't ever want to see one of these again. Um, and then it felt special again to get like an invite in the actual mail. Um, so, you know, for us, it's about innovation there. And then it's like, look, I mean. You know, I heard my my CEO refer to print as physical media, just like vinyl and records. Like, how do we even get innovative in, around print? It's like there's a whole NFT strategy out there. There's ways to think about doing these capsule collections and, um, you know, these you know these uh, secret drops um, and just understanding and appreciating you know what physical media looks like. You know, whether you're talking about outdoor or the physical magazine, or events and experiential like we were talking about earlier. All of that is like very high-touch experiences for consumers versus, you know, um, like a live stream, like Met Gala experience, which is, you know, a totally different way to experience a brand, right? So I don't know. I just feel like we have a lot of opportunity to try a lot of new things in our cultural calendar. You know, we've we've put a lot out there kind of on um, – out there for 2022, and then our our new front will come up again this spring where we'll announce some new programming launches and even some new format launches that I'm excited about. And so a lot to happen. Yeah. So I've been kind of building a beat around the blockchain and NFTs and stuff like that at Digiday. So I'm going to ask you a little bit about like the the plans you're seeing there. I know fashion um, is one industry that's really embracing NFTs and like the drop model really works already there. Um, you know, some, I think Rebecca Minkoff did a whole like capsule collection of NFTs. Um, I'm, I'm really curious, do you see like your fashion brands kind of thriving in that space or maybe wired? Likely I was already kind of thinking about that, but what is exciting you about that like blockchain area? I mean, how, that's a whole nother podcast, um, but like so much. I mean, I literally, you actually should be talking to my wife because she like nerds out on this so much, but um, I'm big in ETH right now, as I've been told. Um, no, I mean, look, I think that there's the there's so many kind of like, there's so much NFT possibility with our brands, especially, and it's just like a whole other realm of how we think about what we make. And, you know, the currency behind what we make and the influence and, you know, you know, also like, listen, there's, there's a way in which you could say, we're going to make this like one cover. Um, and, you know, what that means to get, you know, let's say we made a hundred issues that had very specific content and they were numbered and you got to have one of those hundred. I mean, we see it happening everywhere um, in this new, like kind of digital ether. There's, so many different ways to even think about 
NFTs. And so this is a big strategy of ours. But I'll be, it's interesting though, like it, it kind of always has been to a certain extent. I think when I think about our our founder, Cy Newhouse, I mean, he kind of thought of, you know, these brands as NFTs, um, you know, always treated these brands like an art collection in and of itself. And so I kind of feel like this is in our wheelhouse. I don't know how else to say it. Um, you know, we've always been a little precious in that way. And so I, I don't know, I think, th- I, you know, there's a lot cooking. Um, we're, we're building it out. I think you'll start hearing about a lot of these different things shortly. Um, but it's, I do think that not everyone's going to be successful here. Um, I think a lot of people think they will. Um, so I just think it's about understanding again, like how the blockchain works and how consumers are going to respond to the blockchain and what are you making that's really that special and what's the value proposition behind it and how can we create experiences and products that actually are worthy, right? And so for us, that's where our head is at. And um, we've really creative people that work here at Condé Nast, and I have no doubt that um, you will see your share of those soon. Got it. Yeah, I think I'm really excited about the coming year and seeing the blockchain's influence on digital media and and even legacy media. I think that there's a lot of opportunity around membership and events even. And um, so it's it's I'm always asking around about it because I think it's going to be a, a really cool area. Well, I mean, um, there's from like, I mean, just think about like dinners. I mean, we have like, you know, so many ways in which we provide access to a variety of events and experiences, right? So that in and of itself, to your point, or like membership has been a big part of our strategy. But I just think there's something different about like thinking about things as an NFT and what that brings to the consumer. And it also like just gives more agency back to the creator because, you know, it's not about like tonnage necessarily. It's about creating something that has, you know, one thing can have so much more value than a hundred things. And so I don't know. I just think there's something really um, special about it. And I think it is going to change the way you know, I think it's going to put a little bit more of the, 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 I don't know, specialness back into how we think about what we make and what we do every day. Absolutely. So I guess wrapping up the conversation, I also want to ask about investing in talent. So you talked about all these areas in which you're looking to experiment in the coming year. You want to grow out live shopping operations, your um, blockchain kind of um, interests and uh, beyond that, like investing in IP even more. Um, how are you, I guess, doing that from a like talent perspective? Have you been hiring? Are you thinking about hiring? Are you even thinking about, I don't know, maybe acquiring companies that could do it for you? Because I got to ask about M&A as well. But what's the kind of growth strategy from like an operations perspective? Yeah. I mean, look, again, the goal is to meet the consumer where they are and to be able to be like athletes at doing that and just being able to, you know, in you know thinking about content as multidimensional, so whether again it's a live format or it's you know through the lens of gaming or it's like in a metaverse or it's through a live shopping experience, that requires like a totally different like skill set. Um, you know, I think that ultimately uh, what we've been doing over the last three years is just um, diversifying how we think about talent and di- diversifying how we think about creatives, right? And what does that mean? And what are the capabilities that we're looking for? And I think an obvious one was how are we going to make you know a successful digital video product, right? So that one was like an you know clearly we had to go hire. Um, we now have like a huge production company called Connie Entertainment, full of people that know how to do that really, really well. Um, and so no different than how we're we're approaching even how we think about content 
in partnership with these other platform sites that we work with, you know, just having like total ballers who know how to optimize for TikTok or optimize for Insta or optimize for Pinterest. But like, again, you know, with agility and that, that's, you know, those platforms are having their moment, but it's like, we need creatives that know how to keep moving, right? Because as the consumer moves from one platform to the next, we need our creatives to be able to move with them, right? Or, you know, take consumers to a place they've never been before and how we think about Connected TV is totally different than how you think about, you know, traditional digital video. And so that requires even more nuanced capabilities. And so I would say that we look at this as just like a, you know, a constant, like a constant workout, you know, um, and we're constantly looking for new talent. And that's just going to be the biggest part of our strategy is just having the best of the best in how we think about where we put our brands from a quality perspective um, and how we actually execute on that content in and of itself. So yes, we're hiring. Yes, we've been hiring. If you look at even, you know, some of the the new, I mean, this year alone in the US, um, the majority of our brands have new creatives and new editors and new teams underneath them. And if you look globally, we've been making obviously a lot of big changes from a content perspective. From an investment perspective, um, you know, one, the most important thing is that we're investing in our brands. Um, and we're really focused on what those brands mean in, you know, the countries that we're in to the consumers that we're talking to. Um, we're investing in how we, what the format, you know, um, innovation is for those brands and how we think about Vogue through the lens of video. Um, we're definitely, you know, talking about m and I mean, that's a big part of Roger's um, focus. And look, like we're, in my opinion, like, we made this big change um, in terms of evolution from publishing company to media company. Well, that just opens the door wide open for us. And, um, you know, people ask me all the time, like, well, like, what are you looking for? And, you know, what would you be interested in acquiring? It's like great brands, right, that have either um, great brands or great capabilities, right? So as we talk about our future, like, how are we going to get from here to there faster? So um, right now, like, We've had, you know, we've had an unbelievable performance. Our marketers want more quality journalism and they want, you know, more access to first party data. Um, and they want to, they want their, cons the customer they're talking to, to feel good about them. Right. Um, and so for us, that, that helps our strategy even more. I think investment in e-commerce and MarTech, I mean, this is again, like a big part of what our CMO Deirdre Finley has been focused on is like, how are we legitimately um, becoming, you know, the best, most refined, most sophisticated, like direct to consumer company, not just, you know, advertising company. And so for me, the more successful she is, the more successful I am. And, um, and honestly, like that's, I think part of what gets me excited about our future. That brings us to the end of the episode. Um, thank you so much for joining us and being so candid about the past year and what's coming up in 2022. Really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. All right. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of the Digiday podcast. Thank you to everyone for listening. And please don't forget to share this episode with someone who you think would enjoy it. We'll be back next week with another episode.